You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, morning, Ross. Well, as David prayed, um, and many of us probably know, Zach and and the McGinn's, Zach and Kim, uh, are in North Africa uh, or visiting Ruby to encourage her. Um, If you don't know Ruby, um, she's kind of on a short-term assignment as part of our church, uh, serving in North Africa with our partners ultimately to see people come to faith, uh, to see churches planted. And so um, an exciting opportunity for them just to minister to Ruby and to encourage her, to hear her heart, um, so we can be remembering them in prayer. Uh, But for us this morning, uh, we are jumping back to what we were doing before we call the time out in the study of Matthew. So we're back in Matthew uh, for, I think, probably a long time. Because we're just in chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, um, or if you have a phone, go ahead. We're going to be in chapter 10 um, today, and honestly, probably for the next two weeks. So as you turn to chapter 10, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back on those little stands. Uh, I want to share just kind of initially just a story um, that actually took place 200 years ago. Uh, An incredible story uh, about two Baptist missionaries named Adoniram and Anne Judson. And they spent their entire adult lives in the country of Burma as missionaries. And before they would set sail to Burma, Adoniram wrote a letter as he was pursuing Anne to be his wife. He wrote a letter to his would-be father-in-law. And part of what he wrote, I want to read to you, because he wrote this. He says this to it. Grant, this is not his father-in-law yet. He says, I have now to ask Whether you can consent to part with your daughter, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to every kind of want and distress, to insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness? Now, I have two daughters. And I've, I've asked my own father-in-law if I could marry my wife. And I, I, don't know, I don't know how I would respond to a letter like this. But not long after, Anne actually writes a pretty similar letter to a a friend of hers. She says this in a letter, I've come to the determination to give up all, give up all my comforts and enjoyments, to sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God, in his providence, shall see fit to place me. Now, these these letters would, would really prove to be prophetic, because the Judsons did, in fact, experience incredible hardship and persecution, what, what they've alluded to here in these letters. Adonai, he would be imprisoned and beaten 
for months on end. They would both fight through depression and isolation and starvation. All three of their children would die at very young ages, two dying in infancy. You know what? Anne's father would never see her daughter again. She died in Burma, young, at the age of 37. You see, incredible hardships and sufferings, they always seem to be around the corner for Adoniram and Anne. Unbelievable hardships, yet at the same time, incredible success in their ministry. They both worked and worked and worked on the language, and after 24 years, they translated the entire Bible into the spoken language. In fact, a translation that is still widely used in Burma today. And they came with the goal to establish one church with 100 believers. But by the time of their death, they planted 100 churches and 8,000 believers. And the legacy of their persevering and pioneering work in Burma, it's ongoing. And it's staggering. Burma is a dominant Buddhist country, but yet it has one of the highest number of Baptist movements in the entire world. There's over a million Christians in Burma today. So if you're like me and you hear a story like this, you begin to place these people, the Judsons, in categories, a heroic category. Because this is what we tend to do when something feels impossible. We make it singular. We make it special. But as we jump into Matthew 10, Jesus is going to press against that. Jesus is going to give us a lesson that what the Judsons did it actually wasn't extraordinary. It's not singular. It's not special. As a matter of fact, it's normative for the call of the Christian. So let's read Matthew 10, the first 15 verses. Starting in verse 1, chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. And he, Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Cananean, and Judas the Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, and cleanse lepers. Cast out demons, for you have received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborers deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Would you pray with me? Father, we do pray that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We ask, Lord, that you might just prune back any hedge in our life 
so that we might see a bigger picture of you today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, I know we have to go back in memory recall a little bit, but as we think back to Matthew, to the kind of the purpose of the book, uh, we know that Matthew was written so that fellow Jews, so that fellow Jews would understand and see Jesus as the Messiah, that Jesus is the anointed one, the long-awaited, promised king. And Matthew writes in a way that we've seen so far that demonstrates this that puts Jesus' full authority as God on display. If you look at chapters 5 and 7, we saw that authority in how Jesus taught, right? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. And and specifically in the last two chapters, in 8 and 9, we saw Jesus' full authority on display, authority over every sickness and disease, authority over nature, authority over any demonic force, and even the authority to forgive sins, So as we come now into chapter 10, we now see that Jesus, by his God-given authority, will call and send out his disciples to continue the work of God on this earth. And so while our text, as I just read, it does carry very specific directives, and as we'll see later on, there'll be specific warnings for a particular mission that he's sending them on, My prayer simply is that we will uncover just a broader truth this morning, that the normative call of the Christian is to live as sent ones, to declare, to demonstrate the authority of God in our life as Jesus did while on earth. So that's our big idea, that we see that Jesus delegates his authority from God, that which he has been revealing. We've seen how he's been doing this in previous chapters. And now he's going to send out his disciples to advance, to multiply his kingdom here on earth. Jesus delegating his authority from God to his disciples to multiply his kingdom on earth. And we're going to see it in three ways. We're going to see that Jesus calls. We're going to see that Jesus sends. And we're also going to see that Jesus sustains. All right? We're going to work through it. So Jesus calls, Jesus sends, and then Jesus sustains. First of all, First of all, Jesus calls, and we see this uh, absolutely just in in verse 1, right? And he, Jesus, and he called to him his 12 disciples. Now, this is a little bit interesting because Jesus has already begun the work of calling his disciples. We can think back all the way to chapter 4. Remember his words, come follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. In fact, as we kind of put a timeline together, we know for certain that five have already responded to some sort of calling to be his disciple up until this point. And if we look at other narratives and other gospel accounts, we actually find that there's many more disciples than just these 12 that we see in our text. You can look at Luke 10. So while there are many disciples, much more than just these 12 within Jesus's, in a sense, his student body of disciples, Jesus uh, pointedly selects these 12 for a particularly unique role in his kingdom, as we soon shall see. So let's look at this list of 12 men in verses 2 through 4. As we look through it, we have Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas, Matthew, another James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. And I don't know about you, but whenever I encounter 
a list of names like a genealogy or here with a list of disciples, I kind of find it hard to preach concerning any relevatory possibilities, right? But yet, Jesus' calling of these 12 becomes one of the most significant events of his earthly ministry because Jesus literally uses the lives of these 12 guys to turn the world upside down. So we'd, we'd, we'd do well to slow down and look at it, right? And as you look at this list of names, we don't find like Peter the Great. We don't find Dr. John, five-time scholar of the year. We don't find St. Thaddeus, the holiest order of the most supreme, right? What do we find? Common, the most common One commentator said these are the most common names of ancient Galilee and Judea. A list of ordinary men, no one individual standing out with unusual ability or talents. And neither do do any appear to have much wealth or academic pedigree or social advantage. In fact, what's most interesting is really the immense variety. There's governmental employees like Matthew. There's governmental haters like Simon the Zealot. There's brothers, there's individuals, there's blue-collar workers, there's white-collar workers. They're not Pharisees, they're not rabbis, they're not priests, they're not prophets. They're ordinary, everyday people. But one thing all these men had in common is that they're called by Jesus. They're called by Jesus. Secondly, Jesus sends. Jesus sends. These 12 whom he's gathered, who he's called, he now sends on a particular mission. And he designates unto them, this is important, he designates a new term for them. Instead of saying disciple, he now says what? He uses the word apostle. Look with me in verse 2. He says the name of the 12 apostles, he doesn't say disciples, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Now, this is the first and only time that Matthew will actually use this term apostle when referring to the 12. And there's a huge difference between what a disciple is and what an apostle is. Because a disciple, as we, as we know, is a student. It's an individual patterning their life after their teacher. But an apostle is one who's sent by somebody in authority. Meaning the one who uh, is sent bears the same authority as the sender. It's no accident the word authority contains the word author. As Christians, we believe and accept that God is the author of all that is, right? The psalmist says, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. By virtue of his position over creation, or as creator of over all things, God inherently has the authority to command his creation whatsoever he pleases. God alone, in final analysis, has absolute authority. So as the New Testament unfolds, we see that Jesus really is the first apostle being sent into our world by God. And Jesus says this in just a few verses. In verse 40, he says this. He says, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So as Jesus calls these particular 12 disciples to himself, What he's doing is actually creating a new level of authority by delegating his own God-given authority to them. And we see this authority he gives them if we go back to verse 1, right? He calls his 12 disciples and he gives them what? Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now notice the authority was not simply just to demonstrate unbelievable power, right? 
It wasn't, hey, make the temple go from here to there, or hey, appear there and then reappear over here, right? It's not that at all. But it's miracles that would demonstrate the character of God and the nature of his kingdom. And it's the same authority that we've seen Jesus do in the previous chapters in Matthew. It's the same authority Jesus has already modeled. For Jesus was and had casting out demons and healing every type of disease and affliction. See, Jesus gives us authority because he has the authority. You can only give what you have. So in short then, what we see here is that the mission of the apostles that Jesus was sending them on was to multiply the activity of their master. And this becomes clear as we see that Jesus sends these 12 appointed apostles really on a short-term mission trip. And he tells them where to go. If we go down to verse 5, he says this, the 12 Jesus sends out. He sends them out instructing them saying this, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is kind of an interesting uh, instruction. When Jesus spoke these words, they were already in Galilee, the Gentiles to the north and the Samaritans to the south. But Jesus says, don't go to either. And this, this seems strange, I think, to our ears. But we can take a little maybe reassurance that later on that Jesus does send a much or give a much larger commission, right, to the ends of the earth. But for this particular mission, Jesus says, I want you to focus your missionary activity on the, on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that word lost carries this idea of perishing or dying. See, it's not an informational mission that Jesus is sending them on. He's sending them on a rescue mission. A rescue mission that will involve two things. It will involve preaching and healing. Or as we say here at the Vine, it will involve declaring and demonstrating. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, And proclaim, Jesus says, as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick and raise the dead. Cleanse out uh, lepers. Cast out demons. You receive without pain. Give without pay. Notice what Jesus does not say to the apostles. He does not say, go find the wealthiest, most affluent, powerful group of people and befriend them. No. What does he say? Go to the diseased, the despised. Go to those who are dying. Cleanse those with skin diseases. Drive out demons. In a sense, Jesus is saying, go where there is great need. Go to those the world has ignored or oppressed. Why? Because the kingdom of God almost always goes against the grain. And we know this, right? This is the radicalness of the gospel. That it's not just an addition to our lives, but the gospel is to change our lives. And so as they go out to those in need, meeting those needs, they're not just to meet the needs, but they're also to speak, to declare, to proclaim something. They're to proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this message probably sounds pretty familiar to our ears, right? It's the same message all the way back in chapter 3 that John the Baptist was proclaiming. And it's the same message that Jesus was proclaiming throughout his earthly ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Jesus is telling his apostles, I want you to go and to preach to my people the same message that I have been preaching. Tell them. I want you to tell them the one the Father has sent as as, as the anointed king. He's in their midst. Your business is to proclaim my message. That's it. Nothing more. The mission Jesus sends the apostles onto is the same mission given to him by his Father. And Jesus advances that mission by delegating his own God-given authority to these 12 apostles and sending them to multiply the work of his Father here on earth. So Jesus calls, Jesus sends, but Jesus also sustains. In the remaining seven verses, the instructions are going to get very practical and very specific. Verse 9. Jesus says this, Acquire no gold, no silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics, no sandals or staff, for the laborers deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter... Oh, sorry, I'm going to stop right there. Um, so no bag, no, no money, no bag, no sandals, staff... Um, uh, for this journey. So he's saying, I don't want you to bring any money. Don't put any money in your, in your belts. I don't want you to have a bag. You don't need to bring any provisions. You know, no extra tunic, no extra sandals or staff. Just go with what you already have. In a sense, Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to travel light. Now, having just gotten back from a short-term mission trip to Ecuador myself, as I was like reading through this passage this week, um, I had like a massive feeling of like conviction come over me. Because I, as I went to Ecuador, first I go to the bank, I withdraw significant amount of cash for the trip, right, that I need. I don't pack one bag, I pack two bags for this five-day trip, all right? And now we have what Jesus says here. But being a good student of the Bible always, always, always means we understand the context. And so while Jesus' directives, it's, it seems a bit odd of what's going on here, What we need to remember is this is a specific instruction for a distinct mission that he had for the apostles. It's not a guideline for all future mission endeavors. Maybe there's some principles. And I think the principle that Jesus was driving at for the apostles was simply this, for a full and complete trust in God's provision. That as they stepped out in faith, Jesus wanted them to recognize that it's him who's going to sustain them. That Jesus would sustain their need for food and shelter and provision. That Jesus would even sustain for the results of their ministry, as we'll see in these next few verses. It's Jesus who will sustain them. I think that's the principle Jesus is getting after. Verse 11, Jesus says, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Common practice in this time of age where, when you travel is that you just lodge with other people, often with strangers. This is before Airbnb, right? So rather than looking for the most comfortable accommodations as you're scrolling through, you know, what am I going to select for where I'm staying? Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to seek out not just comfort, But I want you to seek out people of peace, those receptive to your work. Verse 14, 
And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. In Jewish perspective, Gentiles were, were unclean. And that uncleanliness actually extended to the lands of the Gentiles. So if a Jew walked through a Gentile territory, even Samaria, upon arriving back to Israel, the first thing they're doing is they're shaking the dust off their feet and off their clothes. Kind of like when you go hiking, right? There's that little thing that you're supposed to get all the, what is it? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. They're, they're ridding themselves of the dust of these unclean places, right? They're not, they don't want to bring that back into their land. Verse 15 says this, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now that is a hard saying. That is a hard saying. Because Sodom and Gomorrah, if you know your Bibles in the Old Testament, it represents the totality of awfulness of human sin and corruption. A place ultimately met, right, with God's judgment and complete destruction. So this, these words, are, I think, are pretty hard to swallow. That Jesus would employ a reference of Sodom and Gomorrah for comparison's sake for those who reject these apostles. Meaning that if anyone rejected this message, this authority given to the apostles, the apostles were instructed by Jesus to shake the dust off their feet as a sign that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for those who have ultimately rejected Christ in their life. That's a hard saying. And yet beyond this hard or harsh comparison, honestly, honestly is an incredible plea of compassion and grace for us today. Friends, Matthew brings us right up to the edge of a cliff. We're staring right into the, the eyes of a message of truth. That if you choose to reject the message and authority of Christ in your life, there's a certain destruction that awaits you. But, hear this, that does not need to be your story. In God's great love, he's given us his word. He's given us his very life that we might believe and be saved from this certain and absolute destruction that you and I rightly deserve. That's what the entire life of Jesus is all about. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd that does what? The good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is our greatest treasure. And this can be yours today. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation through Christ can be yours. If you're sitting here this morning, you've not put your faith in Christ. And you hear these words, this incredible grace offered to you this morning. See, there's two applications of this text that I've found. Two applications. And the first one is really simply this. Do you recognize and submit to the authority of Christ 
to save you from your sins. Is that true of you? That's step one. It's the doorway into all other matters of life. And if you believe in step one, if you have recognized and you do submit to the authority, the lordship of Christ, then step two is to live your life on mission for God. To live in such a way that your life declares and demonstrates the authority of Christ to all those around you. Matthew 10, as we've seen, it's, it's spoken to a particular 12 apostles for a specific mission. But as the New Testament unfolds, all followers of Christ are likewise charged. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a familiar passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and then entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We employ you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As Christians, we have been charged, as the apostles were charged, to live as sent ones, to represent, to declare, and to demonstrate the good news of Christ. Amen? Remember the work, the story at the very beginning of Adoniram and Ann Judson. That is not a singular or special result of following Christ. What the Judsons did is normative. It's a normative call for all of us who are Christians. It's ordinary folks faithfully, hear that word, faithfully living out the calling God has placed on each one of our lives. So does this mean that we should sell our possessions and set sail for a faraway country and spend the rest of our lives translating Scripture for a people that has yet to hear the good news of Christ? Maybe. Maybe for some of us. For most of us, I think probably not. God has uniquely gifted and called each one of us in different ways. I think a better question is this. As Jesus calls you, are you listening? As Jesus calls you, are you listening? As Jesus sends you into whatever daily fray that awaits you every day, are you obediently, faithfully declaring and demonstrating by your life the hope of Christ? And as Jesus longs to be your sustainer, are you depending on his perfect provision for the work that he has for you? He wants to sustain you. Are you looking to him or to yourself? Now, I know when we consider this idea of sharing our faith, of representing our faith, or simply just encouraging our fellow brothers and sisters like in a city group night, 
I understand the paralyzing fear and timidness that can come over you. Because I'm right there with you. And I have failed often so many times to live this out in my own life. So I want to just close our time by just sharing a simple encouragement and a simple plan that we just might grow as a church, as the vine, that we would grow in our faithfulness in living this out. So first, an encouragement. Look back with me in verses 2 through 4. This list of guys, verses 2 through 4. And as you, as you look through, as you let your eyes kind of glance through this list of guys, we know, right, we know about half these guys we're probably pretty well versed in. Like, oh, I could say a couple facts about, about half of these guys because they're written about in Acts, right? But the other half we virtually know nothing about. In fact, if I said, hey, we're going to have a pop quiz underneath your, in your chair, there's a piece of paper, I want you to write out all 12 disciples' names. How many of us would ace that exam? But yet, but yet, we're familiar with this grouping, the 12 disciples, right? We may not remember all the individual names, but we are understanding of this collective group as a whole. And as we've seen, this, this collective group of apostles includes a wide variety of individuals from many different backgrounds, all given the authority by God to complete a singular mission to go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. Does not that sound a lot like the church? A group of collective people from a variety, a variety of individuals with many different backgrounds, and just like the 12 apostles, given authority by God to complete a singular mission to go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. God uses ordinary, everyday people to advance his kingdom. There's nothing extraordinary about any one of those apostles. And although I love you, I don't think there's really that much extraordinary about any one of us in this room. But God used that group of ordinary, everyday apostles to turn the world upside down. Jesus called those men not for what they were, but what they were capable, capable of becoming in his power. He didn't choose them because of their faith, for we know how often their faith falters as we read through the Gospels. Rather, the one characteristic that, that consistently rings true, especially as you read the book of Acts, is that they have a shared willingness to obey Jesus. There's a faithfulness to do what Jesus said. It's not perfect. And as Zach often says, it's not our direction, right? But it's, our, it's, it's not our perfection, but it's our direction. What makes the apostles unique, what makes the Judsons unique is their faithful obedience to Christ. So if you sit here this morning contemplating this, filled with doubts, insecurities, or perhaps, Man, I'm not good enough, or I'm not qualified enough for the mission of Jesus, may this group of everyday, ordinary apostles encourage you. If you sit here paralyzed, by a fear of feeling inadequate, of, of I don't have the biblical training or insights that I see others have. May this ordinary group of everyday 
apostles encourage you. Maybe you sit here convinced that your sinful past is too much, that God cannot use you because of what you've done. May this group of ordinary, everyday apostles encourage you. Friends, here's the truth. The disciples then and us now, we can never polish up our lives in such a way that God looks down upon us and says, I'm lucky to have you on my team. Our calling, it doesn't start with us. It starts with God. God is the author of our faith, not you or I. May that truth free you today. We have nothing to prove to Jesus. He doesn't care about seminary degrees or squeaky clean past or articulate and magnetic personalities. You have nothing to prove to Jesus because his calling in your life is rooted in grace, in grace alone. Amen? And lastly, I just want to share a simple plan that I've learned from a very close pastor friend. And actually, in city groups, I'm excited for us all to walk through this document together, that we can lean in together as a church of what might this look like to faithfully declare and demonstrate the good news of Christ to others. The plan is this. One, pray. Two, be present. And thirdly, present yourself as a Christian. First, to pray that we would be a people that are praying for the salvation of those around us. Evangelistic faithfulness begins by taking others into your heart, right? And if you're not taking those around you into your heart to God, I can guarantee you that your own heart is being stunted in love and compassion, And you're probably not seeing much fruit. It starts with prayer. It can be so simple. Many of you I know are doing this. Just a a note card in your Bible, a photo on your screen, a verse that you memorize as you walk around your neighborhood or run around your neighborhood, praying for your neighbors by name. A simple plan that is about, is praying for those around around you. Every night I ask Lucy, who who are we going to pray for tonight? What neighbor are we going to pray for? And it's been amazing to see her own little four-year-old heart grow and taking others into her heart. As she's saying, Dad, I just want God to help me be a light to this neighbor or that neighbor. That's precious. May that be reflective of all of our hearts as we grow in this desire to see those around us know Christ. We pray for specific people. Secondly, we, we, we're present. What does that mean? It means that we're, we're front yard people. We're front yard people. Intentionally seeking to be among unbelievers. We don't hide. We come to the front yard. And it will look different for each one of us depending on your gifts or the context of where you live. But are we asking ourselves the question, how can I be regularly present among unbelievers within my spheres of influence? Are you doing that in community? Is there accountability of you doing that? You know, a great place to start is simply with hospitality. Many will not come in the doors of our church, but they will come in your door and eat dinner with you. It's often been said that the kitchen table might be the most powerful place to share the gospel today. I know for us, we took this to heart this last summer, and we 
We just opened up our grill and threw meat in it every Thursday night. And we said, hey, neighbors, this is what we're doing on Thursday nights. Come on over. Get some food every Thursday. And it was amazing to see other neighbors in our neighborhood come and say, hey, could, could we host next Thursday? Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. But are you regularly being present among unbelievers so that, thirdly, you may present yourself as a Christian? We'd be willing to talk like a Christian, not hiding our faith when opportunities arise, but determining ahead of time, hey, I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to be an ambassador for God. I'm going to connect faith with the real world. This is a simple plan to pray, to be present, and present yourself. And it doesn't guarantee that unbelievers in massive amounts are going to be saved. What it does do, I think, is it cultivates faithfulness. Faithfulness. And that's what I want to commend to you this morning, is that we would be a people faithful in bringing and sharing the good news of Christ to all those around us. That we as a church, we would see baptism after baptism, church planted after church planted. That we would see our city transformed by the gospel because we are known as a people leaning in to faithfully declaring and demonstrating the good news of Christ to all those around us. May that be true of us. Let's pray. God, we, one, just are so grateful for your life. Jesus, we thank you for your obedience to die on the cross for our sins, that the certain destruction that should await us is no more, but there's life and freedom. And Lord, I pray for each one of us as we consider what does this mean to be sent out as the apostles were sent out. Lord, what would you help us individually and together as we talk in city groups this week? Would you be our help, our source of strength to generate ideas of what this might look like, especially as the, the weather turns and we begin to see more of our neighbors? Lord, may we truly be ambassadors to all those around us Lord, grow our hearts to be individuals. Uh, the characteristic of faithfulness would be primary. Lord, I know the challenge and the obstacles and the fears that come with us. So Lord, I pray that you would meet each one of us where we're at and that you would move us one step closer to the calling that you've given us. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we may learn alongside the apostles. In your name we pray. Amen.